Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. Welcome to another episode of Arabiyat with Linda and Suraya. I'm Linda. And I'm Suraya. Today we have Reem Asil in studio. If you're a Bay Area activist, you may have heard of Reem from her community and labor activism. But today you'll likely see her serving up some Arab treats at the San Francisco Food Festival. Her slogan is, traditional Arab street food made with California love. She's bringing Bay Area foodies a taste of Arab street food. Some of it you may have come across before and some of it new. Reem. Growing up, the food that I have come across in restaurants, and not really not restaurants, but delis a lot of the time is the Arab focus of restaurants, was falafel and shawarma and kebab. And I noticed that your specialty is mana'ish. Tell us a little bit about what makes your catering business, Reams, different than other Arab restaurants. So, you know, f- food in general in this country, um, a lot of it is transactional, right? It's like you provide a food and... The person pays for it, and then that's it. There's no, uh, there's no conversation. There's nothing that comes out of it. And I really wanted um, the food that's provided by Arabs in this country to uh, really be about the experience, right? And so um, when most people think about Arab street food, they think about what falafel and shawarma. I wanted to go beyond that because the Arab world is so expansive uh, in, its, uh, in its cuisine, um, and also it's culture, right, that's spoken through the cuisine. I wanted to really be able to bring that. And, um, you know, growing up in an Arab household, my mom is Palestinian, my dad is Syrian. Uh, my mom grew up in Beirut for most of her life. I had all this um, access uh, and, like, nostalgic experience with food that for many years I took for granted. And it wasn't for... Um, It wasn't until I was an adult and kind of took up uh, baking as a profession. So I left my the organizing world to actually become a baker to work in um, one of the most premier bakeries in the um, in in the Bay Area, Arizmendi Bakery and Pizzeria, and seeing kind of the bakery as a uh, as a routine, right? Um, as like a part of people's everyday experience and how important and essential that was. And in 2010, when I actually went to Beirut, I had an epiphany when I kind of walked into one of the street corner bakeries and saw these mana'ish. So um, for folks who are not familiar with mana'ish, they are uh, a traditional uh, fresh baked, right? That's important, right from the oven, flatbread um, that's topped with a variety of things, kind of most notably uh, the za'atar mix, which is uh, a, sta- a staple in any Arab household, right? A mix of wild thyme, sumac, and sesame. I call it the the superfood of the Arab world. The best thing ever. The best thing ever. Um, and I saw them flying off the shelves and people um, buying them and talking to the baker as if the baker is part of the family. And I just fell in love with that. And I thought to myself, wow, there isn't this kind of experience in the U.S. that really kind of, this is like the epitome of Arab culture, right? It's like brings all these things. Bread, which is, you know, is a time, tried and true, um, timeless kind of, uh, staple of Arab cuisine and culture from 
as far as far as we can date back right to the modern day and the hospitality piece the kind of like the community like the the community that's created through the bakery experience um i wanted to bring that and i thought this would be a way for folks one for folks who are not familiar with arab culture to kind of see arab culture through this window but then two for folks who are somewhat you know whether you're second or third generation arab or a new immigrant to feel that nostalgia and that connection or yearning that folks have with the arab world that they're not necessarily able to have because they can't travel to the middle east for economic political reasons right so i wanted to bring both that experience um for a variety of folks here in the bay area uh so beyond the falafel and shawarma i wanted the experience rather than just the transaction of food so you were saying your dad is palestinian your mom is syrian the other way oh the other way i'm sorry yeah. um will you tell us a little bit about where you're from here in the united states um you know if if you grew up in the middle east just like a little bit about your personal background. Yeah, so um I was born and raised here in the states. I um I was raised in the East Coast actually in New England and Boston. Um and my parents immigrated here right at the end of the civil war in Le- Lebanon. So my mom had um grown up as a Palestinian in Lebanon from 1967 they were pushed out from Gaza. She's from Gaza. and the civil war had broken out and uh my dad and her met at that time and they moved here this to the states they met in lebanon they met in lebanon okay. yeah um at the time that my dad was actually in grad school in chicago he had come here in the late 70s and had gone back to lebanon and they met there and kind of the experience of i uh, i hear stories from my mom i don't even i can't even imagine what it was like to leave that context to move to a small town of Lancaster Pennsylvania Amishville <laughs> and have to reacclimate to American culture kind of start her life all over again and they eventually settled in Boston and um I'm one of three girls so um and we grew up in New England in a very uh white town um I was the only arab that I knew we had um we had built kind of our community around the mosque. Um my dad um was a, a leader in the community and uh we were lucky we at the the mosque was really cool cuz it was like people from all wakes of life. So we that's kind of how we built our Arab community as well. So um I was very lucky in that like my parents instilled a lot of Arab culture in our upbringing. Um but still it felt like you were a stranger in a strange land because you know like the arab culture is so strong in the household but then like outside the household it was like very much american culture all around me and i know i remember from a very young age like even during ramadan when i was fasting like people would ask me like what's that all about and then my mom would come in and do a presentation like on our culture <laughs> and it was like i kind of took it for granted back then obviously it was like hard to be that like the unique one but i was very lucky that like my parents were all about it and you know my mom would come and do presentations in school and then she would like make ma'mul or batlawa and like the kids thought i was like the coolest kid right cuz cuz of that so oh, that's interesting. I, like food was kind of the way to explain my culture even from a very young age that's interesting because i feel like uh, you know the immigrant experience here is that people get made fun of for their food 
Mm-hmm. So they're not really accepted because, like, what is that? That looks weird. You know, you're not eating, like, mac and cheese or mm-hmm. hot dogs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, but your experience was positive. For your... the most part, yeah, except for the za'atar. Ooh, what's that green stuff? I remember What are the... those that look like ants? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, no, I mean, I think that was, like, yeah, that was the way that um, was kind of, like, an opening into my world. And it was it was hard because the curriculum... I remember going home to my mom. They had like this, we were doing in our world cultures. I think I was like in middle school and they did like, they had this like outdated video, like probably from the 80s about the Arab world, right? About the Middle East. And it had like, it pictured this like Saudi family. And one of the things they said was like, burping is customary in Arab culture to show appreciation for food. And all the kids were like, Ew, like making fun of mm-hmm. like Arab culture. And I remember like, this can't be, this is not what I know, you know, and like going home crying to my mom. She's like, what is this? And then like, she'd had to intervene all the time when things like that happen. Um, so I think I was very fortunate in that like, um, you know, my mom especially, like, I think it's something about Palestinians. We have to, like, tell our story over and over again and kind of, like, maintain our narrative. Otherwise, it gets taken away from us. And I see that now, even, like, as an adult, you know, the being I want to be a pioneer and a trailblazer for Arab street food done. You know, like, authenticity is kind of a funny thing because nobody can really claim authenticity anymore in this world because because of you know, the the nature of our migration patterns and how we meld and like, yeah, makes you know, I, yeah. And I and, you know, I grew up in the States, but, you know, I, I grew up with the traditional food and I grew <laughs> um, and I rediscovered food in California where like the the um, the vegetation is amazing and like the access to different produce that we have. So, you know, I meld all of that. And um, I think one of the things I've discovered as an adult, though, is the pioneers of our food in this. I don't speak just for Arabs, but a lot of ethnic cuisine, like our white folks who are like claiming our food. Um, and I wanted to reclaim that. It's like we can make our food and make it well and charge like what it's worth. Right. Um, people won't buy that. Like, I mean, even like if you think about the California burrito, right, like you go like to like uh, expensive place that's doing like fusion of Mexican food and you can pay top dollar. But if like, you know, somebody if a, if a Mexican person charges like top dollar for their burrito because it's like the most amazing products and the labor that went into it, it's like, no, they can't. It's the same thing with uh, Arab cuisine. Like I've found, I'm part of this incubator program called La Cocina, um, and they really help women of color, immigrant women, um, scale up their food business and uh, really kind of make it in this food industry, which is quite frankly set up against, uh, has so many barriers against um, primarily women and women of color. And um, it's really amazing to be kind of, going through the learning experience of being an entrepreneur and seeing, oh, wow, like there are psychological barriers. People think because my food is ethnic, you know, it's like ethnic cuisine in that realm. It's just a falafel sandwich. You know, I have I can pay cheaply for it. Right. But yeah, like it's the hole in the wall that they can right, go and right. And, it's supposed to be cheap. But it's, right. You know, right. That's um, if anyone has ever seen the what is it? The search for General Tao. It's like a documentary about that 
that food item, General Tsao, and they sort of go through the history of like Chinese American food. Mm-hmm. And there's one guy that was interviewed, and he said something along the lines of like, you know, if a French, if there's like a French restaurant, a French chef, people, you know, it's really expensive and regarded really highly. Mm-hmm. But Chinese is expected to be, you know, cheap. Yeah. And right. is not respected for the craft of, of the cooking. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it's like yeah, across like the people board. People pay $20 for a bowl of spaghetti. And there was like a whole article on ethnic cuisine in the Chronicle that talked about this. And it was really an eye opener for me because um, like Arab cuisine. The, so then on the opposite side of that coin, for a variety of reasons, like even our own folks who are selling the cuisine, um, they often coin themselves as Mediterranean or kind of taking away the Arab from it because it's not palatable, right, because of what's happening in the media around Arab culture. And so I was very intentional about putting the word Arab in my tagline um, because it's something to be celebrated, not to be feared, right? So I wanted to take the stigma away from that. Um, And really, it's been perceived well. People didn't know about Arab cuisine as the way that I'm presenting it. um, And that feels really good to be able to say, hey, this is something to be celebrated. Arab culture is beautiful. You know, our food is our way of showing our hospitality. We want to give you that experience. Right. So, um, yeah. So I I really wanted to kind of bust through both of those themes, like be a pioneer being. I thought it was so important, especially um as an arab woman uh growing up here in the states to be able to be that that kind of gateway uh so like a lot of the people who eat my food are have uh, like maybe this is the first time they've ever interfaced with arab culture or arab cuisine a lot um so it's it's kind of a gateway right to be able to translate our culture through our cuisine and it's a conversation you know then we get to talk about like where it comes from you know, how it's experienced in the Arab world. So even if that person never gets to go to Beirut or Damascus or Jerusalem, um, they're able to experience it through the food. As an example of what you kind of mentioned about generalizing our food um, and labeling it Mediterranean, sometimes it's more specifically generalized, but still generalized as Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. So um, if you know Rawiya Bishara, she's the cook and owner of the successful New Very York restaurant, Tanurin. Yeah. And, she, you know, I have her cookbook. It's called Olives, Lemons, and Zata to the Best Middle Eastern Home Cooking. And and she's from Nazareth. You know, mm-hmm. she's from Palestine, what is known as Israel today, but she is Palestinian. And she doesn't, she also had generalized her cooking. And I, I found it interesting that, you know, you see these cookbooks, Italian Italian food, Chinese food, French food, like every cookbook is particular to the country. Yet when it comes to a Palestinian, not only we don't even say Palestinian, we don't say Arab either. If you want to generalize the region, mm-hmm. we go straight to Middle Eastern or Mediterranean. Uh, it's, you know, for me, growing up as Palestinian, it's it's inevitable. Like politics is in my blood. You know, like we're forced to deal with these kind of questions about our existence on a day-to-day basis from as far as I can remember. So my food uh, really reminds me of that um, and reminds me of kind of w- what am I doing that's uh, that's really in line with my vision and values um, and, you know, um, even my quest for my own liberation, right? And so I appreciate folks who are on the cutting edge of the food world um, who are very forthright about their background and their stories behind them. I'm not sure. I I feel like one of the things that I really appreciate about Alia's book is that she does tell the stories of 
um, her childhood and her upbringing in Nazareth, which is really cool. Um, and she has some like really traditional Palestinian foods, which is great because uh, mostly when we hear about Palestinian foods, they're coined as Israeli, right? Um, and I wanted to go against that trend, right? Um, because that's another erasure of Palestinian culture um, when our foods get to be claimed as Israeli. Um, so I'm very intentional about saying where the food is from, what the evolution of the food is. And it, it is, it's a political stance that I choose to take. And I think that in the short run, I'm, you know, I may come up with challenges against that because of the way the industry is set up. But in the long run, it really speaks to the vision and values of the people that I want to be in my space. I want to build a space of multiculturalism that that does talk about the gray areas of like what is, you know, I'm not claiming the word authentic because authenticity is such a uh, subjective word. But I, I am claiming that, that there is an intentionality about why foods are claimed that the way they are. So um, it was very important for me as I was thinking about my food to really be explicit about where this food comes from and to not shy away from my Palestinian identity. It's a political act that I'm doing and doing my food business um, and kind of being in the world now, like it's very, uh, it's even giving me more drive to do what I'm doing because if we don't do it, other people will claim our food. Right. And that's another way that our history gets erased. So speaking about erasure of history, I do kind of want to get into the whole idea of like Israel claiming a lot of Palestinian cultural like cuisine. Like I, as a Palestinian, am very angry when I just automatically my gut instinct is I'm pissed off when I hear Israel claiming falafel as their food. And yet there's the gray area of, you know, Jewish uh, Yemeni, you know, Jewish Arabs. Yemenis and yeah. Arabs, you know, bringing that food to Israel, yeah. not necessarily saying that the European Jews who created Israel are the ones who own this food. But now that gray area exists and 20 percent of uh, Israel are Palestinian citizens of Israel. And so they, of course, have infused their culture. You know, how do you grapple with those gray areas? I mean, I don't think that there's grappling to do. I think that there, there, there's a very, there's an agenda, right? And, and I understand it very clearly, uh, like politically, when, uh, you know, the kind of the claiming of uh, Arab food, right? And there's like Arab, Arab food, right? And when you say there are Arab, Arab Jews, right, Who brought let's the explain food? That. I mean, the way I understand it is where the gray area is that there, there is, there's a lot of influence from Arab. Jews who lived in that region for with Christians and Muslims like you know and and infuse that um there are also Palestinians um who have a livelihood to make right and are providing food um there's a difference between that and that being just part of the culture right um and uh, Israel trying to normalize the relations, right, by saying this is our food and we celebrate and we're multicultural and all this stuff. It's a way for them to kind of normalize uh, or even kind of blanket um, the atrocities of their um, their takeover of Palestinian land and their continued occupation. Um, and the reality is that they're... Uh, there is a power dynamic there in terms of who's the face of that food and who gets to claim it, right? Um, so um, I think there's very something very explicit in that. Now, you know, I've read the, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, the 
Otolangi. 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 Yotam. Yotam. Yotam's book, and you know he's like cool because his partner is Palestinian, and he's he's the he is like kind of he has a cookbook called Jerusalem, and you know his. His recipes are pretty, pretty damn good. They're really good. I, <laughs> I, no joke. I have, I like have the three his three recipe books in like ebook form because I'm yeah. not like you know. But I've tried so many of his recipes, and he has like a way, and it upsets me because he's Israeli, but he has like a way of of modernizing our food, yeah. you know. And I'm just so upset because it's so good. Yeah. So. So he actually is an inspiration for me for why I need to do this because he, if you think about the pioneers again, and I'm like I'm saying also like you know like the the folks who are like not connected to Arab culture but think it's cool and like do the fusion thing and that's fine. There's like a lot of you know food out there that I appreciate, um, but like if the folks who are the pioneers of our food are doing it well and happen to be Israeli, like, that's an issue. Like, it gives me more uh, drive and inspiration to be a Palestinian to be able to do that, right? Um, because there are people from Palestinian culture that who are on the cutting edge, but then they're, they're not put in the spotlight, right? Um, and, you know, being a male also, like, there are a lot of female uh, cooks who are Palestinian um, and are not featured in the spotlight as much. So... There is a power dynamic there. Ironically, like the the stewards of Arab like cuisine and culture, it's our women, Arab mm-hmm. women. I mean, in the household level, it is the women who are doing this kind of work and, and maintaining this part of the culture. And it's ironic that so many males have are in the spotlight. Exactly. Um, and then on top of that, you know, Israeli or European, yep. it gives a false. Um, yeah. false image or perspective of what is actually happening culturally. So yeah. your work reclaims that. My work reclaims that. So that's that's one part of the political kind of perspective. The other part is like one of the things that La Cucina wants to do and why I feel like so fortunate to be part of that is San Francisco and the Bay Area in general, like we celebrate this like multicultural diversity. But as you can see, housing is skyrocketing. The wages here in the city are not keeping up with the cost of living. People are being driven out, you know, like you see gentrification on steroids and we're losing that economic and cultural diversity. And so this is also an act to uh, level the playing field a little bit, like really kind of uh, be able to build businesses that sustain us uh, and allow us to stay living in the Bay Area and keeping this as kind of, a, um, you know, what once was or what could be could have been celebrated as a multicultural economically diverse um area that it no longer is right we're fighting against that current um and that's from a kind of social justice economic justice standpoint is also really important and so you know i um you know i celebrate kind of the uniqueness of um, the Arab cultural Arab heritage of my food, but I also do it in conjunction with um, the women all around me in the kitchen who are like, if you go into the La Cucina kitchen, you can see, you can hear like five or six languages being spoken. And so there's something really beautiful about thinking about my food uh, in relation to these other world cuisines and just some of the like similarities and like how we're all connected also to this land 
in California and like the 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 products that we're using, the ingredients that we're using. There's just something really amazing about it. Uh, a lot of Arab restaurants, right? They go by Middle Eastern, Mediterranean. They a lot of them here in the Bay Area are Palestinian run. Um, across the United States are usually like maybe Lebanese run, mm-hmm. but they tend to cater their food to American and specifically white American palates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they really water down the acidity of, like, lemon and the mm-hmm. sourness. They don't use as much garlic. And is that an issue for you and your food? Are you, do you try to, like, have your food be accessible to non-Arabs or, like, white Americans? Mm-hmm. Or are you just, I mean, again, like, mm-hmm. it's not going to be authentic. Like, you were saying authenticity is subjective, but... Are you trying to cater it to more Arab tastes of like what you know to be traditional? So the way I describe my cuisine, it's kind of a fine line. I want to evoke nostalgia in people who are vaguely familiar with the food, but also curiosity in people who've never had the food. It's like a window and a mirror, right? Like for folks who recognize that food and it like kind of um, brings that sort of nostalgia, I want to be able to do that. And at the same time, I want... Um, to kind of provide a window or an opening for people who've never experienced it at all. So with that, um, it, you know, I'm very intentional about kind of like what um, what ingredients I use. Um, the reality is that most of my food, um, it is the way it's translated, the way I talk about it, it is for folks who've never experienced the food, but um, it's accessible to anyone and everyone. Um, with that said, it's mostly in the way that I talk about the food. I um, I don't try to water down any of my food. I remember when I first thought of this idea and I told my mom, and she's like, Reem, I don't think you should do mana'ish. Like, I don't think the American public is ready for za'atar. You know? Oh, they're ready. Oh, they're, they're super ready. ready. They're Trader Joe's ready, yeah. man. No, no. <laughs> I saw Muhammadah and Trader Joe's. I was like, what is this? Listen, Zaka, uh, I saw it being sold for $8, like the size of like a little spice, you yeah. know, like a little spice bottle. Yeah. $8. Yeah. Zaka is the cheapest thing we have. It's like poor people's well, food. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, um, well, so something interesting about that that I'll get to, but like, yeah. So, um, you know, I was like, okay, I'll make my toppings fun. I'll do the za'atar, but maybe that's not going to be the best seller. I'll do like all the different toppings that you would find on Mana'ish. And actually people love za'atar, you know, and people have perceived my food really well. They, um, One of the, the, the fun things that I have is that in the street food setting, so when I have my farmer's markets on Thursdays uh, in the mission, um, I make my Mana'ish on the sage. <gasps> Wow. So, I just, um, <laughs> so people walk by and they see this big dome and like, you know, these breads being slapped on it and they get to there's nowhere where you can actually like buy your bread like straight from the oven to the hand. Right. Like with the exception of Neapolitan pizza places that you see. So it's really just a treat to be able to see, you know, your product being made from like this little dough ball being stretched right in front of you, slapped on, topped, wrapped. You know, do you want to explain? To do you want to explain what a saj is for? Yeah, a so a saj is a traditional a griddle all the way from ancient times. It's a domed kind of uh, convex griddle, um, and uh, it's used to make our breads. And you just 
you know, slap the bread on there and it griddles up and bakes kind of in real time. And um, we make anything from our kind of thin breads uh, in Palestine. You'd call it mar'u or shrak. Uh, in Lebanon, that's a, a lot of the kind of mena'ish are a thinner mena'ish and they're wrapped like a sandwich um, and they make them on the sage. And yeah, it's just it really a fun treat. It looks like a big, um, as people, I saw my Yelp um, uh, my first Yelp uh, review, review uh, the customer d- was describing it as a spaceship. It looks like a big spaceship thing. <laughs> uh, and my Saj is straight from Lebanon. I lived off of Saj when yeah. I was in Beirut. Be- uh, I lived in, in Beirut. Beirut so, you uh, know. so I lived off of that like almost daily. I had manouche right. or I had like a Saj, some sandwich, sandwich. just made on Saj. Yep, exactly. So... Yeah, so I wanted that. I wanted to be part of people's daily routine. And so at the Mission Community Market, um, I have loyal customers who come for their, like, because it's from 4 to 8, so it's, like, perfect for their commute home on their way to um, home. To They don't want to cook at night or they want a little treat or appetizer. You know, they just grab their manusha like a sandwich. We serve it like a sandwich. We fill it with different veggies, um, and they grab it and go. So that's the thing about the manusha. It's a very versatile. It's like one of those products that allows you to stay a while and share with friends or have one all to yourself, you know. Um, so, so yeah, so the American public has been so, perce- like, so receptive of our food. We um, we don't use an Akkawi cheese. That's a traditional cheese for our manusha. We use a Oaxacan cheese, which is very similar um, to the Akkawi cheese. It's what a, is Oaxacan cheese? A Oaxacan, it's a cheese from Oaxaca, Mexico, and it's a, a string kind of salty cow brine cheese and very similar to Akkawi. And it's like now kind of discovering like food costs are really something that I have to think about my food. So thinking about how do I maintain the integrity of the food, um, but then also like think about, you know, what food costs. So zatar is another one. Zatar is actually to scale up. Zatar is not very cheap. And so one of the things, one of the projects that I've been working on that's really part of my uh, the social justice aspect of my business is that I do. I really. I try to stay local as much as I can. Uh, now, knowing that Zata doesn't grow wildly um, here in California, um, but then kind of doing my research on Zata, I found out it's a drought-resistant plant. You know, the vegetation of it is actually very similar to the California climate. Um, and now I'm um, working with trying to figure out um, a, a partner to actually grow the za'atar and source it locally here, dry it and source it to me um, so that, um, you know, my, even my za'atar can be local, right? That's great. That's yeah. really... And we're um, just now in the kind of talks with um, groups like um, uh, IRC, the International Refugee Committee, I think it's called. Um, they have a community garden where they work with refugees. A lot of them, actually, more recently, have been Syrian refugees um, who come from rural backgrounds and are acclimating to the states. And so they have like a um, a farming uh, project um, and trying to figure out if we can um, be able to scale up the Zatar product and actually be able to employ newly moved refugees that, here in the Bay yeah, Area. The work, what you said earlier about the nostalgia, I mean, you're one of the bases of your work, I think now more than ever is so important for not only Arabs like me and Soraya, people who have been here and just are okay and acclimated, but so many refugees coming 
even in my church, I go to, church, I go to an Arabic church. Mm-hmm. We used to be primarily Palestinian and Jordanian, and now so much more, so many more Syrians are coming. So, of course, mm-hmm. if anyone's not aware of what's happening in the world today, Syrian refugees are flooding the world, the U.S., everything. So these kinds of things will probably help them be comfortable in their new surroundings after being so, like, interested, traumatic experience in Syria. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you're... Your work will catch on and really attract a lot of people. And it's a transformative experience for me because then I get to, again, it's a conversation back and forth. It's amazing. Like a lot of Arabs are coming to the to my farmer's market on Thursdays. And I'm just striving to be how it was back home. Being able to learn from them like, oh, we do it this way or that way. It's uh, it, It's really been an amazing experience for me as, you know, this food business is something that, has really reconnected me with my culture in a deeper way um, that, that you know, like my connection with my culture has really been about kind of my liberation. Um, and so this is kind of melds all those worlds together, right? My social activism and, um, you know, my, my like re-falling in love with food, li- living here in California for now for over 10 years. So it's just been um, an amazing experience to, to kind of go through that. Um, and I really hope as my food business grows, so the the vision is actually a brick and mortar. Like I do catering, um, I do festivals and farmers markets. I also teach classes, so it's interesting you're saying the second, third generation. So a lot of my baking classes, so I do like basics of bread and because um, I'm a bread nerd. Being an Arizman, do like learn so much about kind of the process of baking. Um, but a lot of people who come to those classes are second, third generation, like their grandparents were immigrated here. They really don't actually have a lot of connection to their culture. And like they found my bread baking class and like this was their their outlet. Like they remember these foods as children. I just but, wanted to say something about that. Like when I saw that you were teaching those classes, I'm seeing you on social media. That's how I saw yeah. you. And so such a need for your work for girls like even like myself or just anyone even your mother she's like yeah. a cook she cooks everything she didn't even let you go in the kitchen you you're told to kind of like pursue your career and you get busy with your work and you kind of don't learn those skills but there's such a part of you and your heart and your culture and you're like i'm getting married and you know i don't know how to cook anything for my kids so you definitely we need more or the arab men come to my classes that mm. are like that like we're return comers and they were like they're they're single bachelors and they um, they don't know how to cook for themselves and like really want this cuisine. So it's like, well, yeah, you should learn it. Great. Um, so it's really it's really kind of fun to see that. Uh, where where do you hold the classes? Um, so I was I was doing them at um, the Arab Community and Cultural Center in San Francisco. Uh, in San Francisco. And um, I offer them uh, through like like a lot of. Like corporate, you know, like uh, like LinkedIn and some of these like tech companies that want to do like team building. Um, and so then I'll offer it to them. They either have an on-site kitchen or I house it at the ACCC. Um, I'm also doing a class in October for 18 Re- at 18 Reasons. I don't know if you guys are familiar with no. that space. It's in the mission on 18th between Guerrero and Dolores. Um, and they're like a community space. They do like community classes. They're like a foodie space um, and you can rent it out. Um, and they're featuring uh, the Manusha. I'm going to do a, a kind of basic spread baking class there. Um, so I do it at a variety of places, but I've mostly housed them out of the Arab Community and Cultural Center. 
So you're saying you were saying you know you teach these classes, yeah. um, and I was just wondering you know you mentioned your work with Arizmendi, but I was okay. So there's this there's in New York there's a guy who's sort of pioneering. Ziad. I don't maybe that's his name. Yeah. I'm not, actually don't know. Right, yeah. exactly. And he you know what I read about him was that he in Beirut got training from you know a, a like a bakery that does. Manaish and he got his training and came back here, yeah. came back to New York and is doing that. Did you do that at all, or are you just working off of your experiences with Ziad? So, so Ziad's interesting because we crossed paths. I went and visited New York, and I went when he was still doing a pop up um, of Manush NYC. Now they got a brick and mortar. Um, we connect because, like, our inspiration was this. Um, kind of the pioneer of the Manusha, I would call her, because she's like an amazing food critic and food photographer. Her her name is Barbara Massad, and she has this amazing book called Manusha. And that's how he got inspired. He, like, picked up her book, and, like, he was like, that's it. Like, I want to do that, right? He was, like, an engineer, um, like, working for a tech company. I think he was, like, completely out of the food world. Um, so so our paths are not, like, exactly similar, but, like, so he saw that book and he contacted her and she set him up with one of the bakers that she featured in her book. Um, I recommend the book if you if you guys haven't seen it. It's like What's the name? Manushi. Yeah, and it's, like, this amazing, uh, it's, like, pictures of Manaish and, like, all the different recipes. And so he started working off that recipe at first and myself as well. Um, my idea of a street corner bakery concept came in 2010 when I was there, like, watching. But I didn't, I joined Arismendi late, like, early 2011. So, like, when I, went, when I got into that, so I did the baking pastry program at Laney College. So I, like, built my skills as a baker kind of, like, more traditionally through culinary school. But it wasn't until I got to Arismendi and, like, saw, like, how do you scale up bread? And we were a pizzeria, which is very similar, the process of making, scaling up pizza um, for a lot of consumers. It's very similar to the Manusha. So I just learned, I kind of paralleled my learning through that process. The vision is, like Ziad, you know, he went from a pop-up. He did his farmer's markets, and um, he was able to kind of generate his following, right, and his fan base and be able to open the successful, successful bakery now um, that seems like it's doing really well. So I'm just kind of trailing him. He's he's a little faster. He's good on his game. Um, so kudos to him. Like he, he definitely was an inspiration when I went out to New York and said, I told him I'm thinking of starting this in California, and he really encouraged me to do it. I'm really glad you're doing this because growing up in Beirut, Manusha was part of my life. And ever yeah. since moving here, that's one of that and chicken shawarma are the two yeah. things I miss the most. And Manaish, when they are done here, are done completely wrong. Like the bread yeah. is too thick and yeah. cakey kind of yes, um, or fluffy. Yeah. And chicken shawarma is just like thick chicken pieces and it's not sliced. So I have, you know, everything that I miss, I'm like not able to have here. Yeah. So I'm really glad, you know, the you're, best you're one, doing Ushe, it. I would say, well, it's debatable. People say, is it the dough or the toppings? I think it's, it's both. a little bit of both. It's both. My man, Ushe, I won't tell all the secrets of it, but um, I like it nice and kind of crispy on the edges and chewy and hot in the inside. Right. So like just the perfect amount of thinness. Uh, so that you can really taste the toppings when you bite into it, right? It's like the ultimate comfort food, and I hope to create that as like a culture piece here. You know, maybe one day the manusha will be 
um, sort of like falafel. the bur- yeah, then well, yeah. Like burritos or well, something? Well, even falafel are not done here. I, like, refuse to eat falafel unless my grandma made that, with the exception of a few notables here in the Bay Area. But um, the fala- fala- people need to step up their falafel game, I know. Too. Falafel should not be green on the inside. Oh, oh, that's... Are you Lebanese? Yes. That's why. <laughs> I, I would... I would beg to differ. Yeah, mine's super green. My I love my good, yeah, the Palestinian. It's yeah, that's funny because that's the, but even I Lebanese like places green. make it green on the inside. Oh, do they? Yeah. yeah. Here in the U.S., I mean, you know the difference between the Palestinian and the Lebanese. No school, falafel. school me. Uh, so the Lebanese use a mixture of chickpea and fava beans. The Egyptians use oh. all fava beans. Uh, and the Palestinians use all garbanzo. I had no idea. I was going to ask you, what about the Syrians? That's a good question. I don't know. I I would say they're probably cl- some more similar to the Lebanese, uh, like from what I've seen of the texture and the color of it. Um, but yeah, that's a little tidbit <laughs> wow. that I learned in just like learning how to make falafel, which I still curse every time I try to oh, make falafel. It's so very hard. hard to make. Do you make product. it? Are you making it for your pop-up? Um, I, I make them from time to time for catering because a lot of folks want vegetarian sandwiches. So I also feature msakhan for folks who are not familiar with that. Like it's one of my best sellers. You know, people love Explain. it even if they can't pronounce it. <laughs> Musakhan is like a very traditional Palestinian chicken dish. Traditionally, it's eaten, it's like these like Huge roasted chicken and sumat over caramelized onions and olive oil. And it's just like a pile of onion and chicken over this thin bread. And you're supposed to kind of just dig in. Um, I serve it like a little wrap uh, in a thin bread. Uh, and uh, It's pretty people, freaking amazing. People love it. It's They call it crack. <laughs> it's like It really is. It's really amazing. But, you know, you might not think it looks appetizing. Like so many times when I make them, oh, well, I make it for like, anyway, I made it for a Persian girl and they love somak and they call it somag and they're very familiar with the spice. But because of how the onions, they look like little worms or whatever. Okay, that doesn't sound very appetizing, but you put it in your mouth and you're just, she wanted it every day for dinner after yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it's very addicting. So just getting back to my vision, you know, I do the, I have these like different ways that I interface the community through my food, but the ultimate vision is to have, uh, you know, uh, like a eatery street corner bakery concept. So, um, you know, in this next phase, as like, I'm trying to catch up with Ziad. He was a little faster than me, but um, to really have a place where people can come to and know this is like where Reams is. If I want to get a fresh manouche, um, this is where I go. Where where are you thinking of doing it? San Francisco or Oakland? Um, well, my heart is in Oakland, but my kitchen is in San Francisco. Um, and there is definitely a market for it in the Mission area. Um, so I'm looking at both kind of Oakland and San Francisco. But in San Francisco, it would be particularly around the Mission. Yeah. We need to kind of countercurrent all the... I feel like a lot of the food places popping up in the Mission are soulless Sushi Rito, anyone? <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's like a have new you heard thing. Of that? Even it's in Beirut, terrible. It's... I've tried. I've you had have? it. I've, it's... Some people really like it, but I'm like, I don't want that much sushi. Dude, you know what I mean? It's like, like meant to be small. Yeah, I, yeah, it's just felt wrong. It doesn't. I don't yeah. know. I didn't try. I, didn't, it I did not enjoy um, my experience. One yet. thing that I hope to do is actually visit Beirut again now, as I'm like deep knee deep in this. Like maybe even to get some kind of apprenticeship like I'm doing an apprenticeship with Delfina which is like a very um, mm, known Italian, pizza, yeah, Italian delicious. pizza place you know to understand their dough like th- that's like what access I have here but like to actually go to the homeland and 
be able to kind of uh, see it, you know, like in real time. I think that's one thing. The other thing is that um, Lebanon is on the cutting edge of like the food scene too. Like it's really, it's kind of amazing. I kind of, I follow this blog called No Garlic, No Onions. Have you ever heard of it? No. You should, you should look it up. He's a food blog, Lebanese food blogger. And he features different food all over. Like, obviously, the manusha pops up a lot. So that's kind of how I got addicted to watching his YouTube videos. Um, he also has an Instagram. And it's it celebrates, like, it's just amazing how, how like, the food has evolved in the Arab world. It's completely modernized. Um, how? Tell us. Um, I mean, it's like you take these tra- traditional staples and then you can do like fusion on them, right? And so when you said the even the sushi sushirito, like they have that, like in the they do they have a huge kind of um, street food scene now where they have su al akal, and uh, I don't know if you where when did you live in Lebanon? Uh, I left in two thousand six, but okay. I I visit so it's probably yeah. it's probably even from that. There's like souk tayyib. Yeah, I know souk tayyib. Yeah, so so al-akil is like more of like the street food scene and all these street food vendors doing a lot of just different fun things. Um, with some of it's traditional, you know, you'll see like the 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 chicken shawarma and the shishtaw and all the different um, you know sandwiches or street food that you know. And then some of it is like just they're just like Changing. playing a lot with the flavors and it's like completely modernized. So I got a lot of my ideas from there, too. That's very interesting. And we are going to wrap up soon. Yeah. But I wanted to make that point. And we kind of are it's a topic of discussion for this podcast a lot in that how Arab culture has becomes modern and how we grapple with that and how, you know, I think sometimes like we expect our like we want we say, you know, we, we need to modernize. We need to move forward with, with our internal critiques of culture here. And then we forget that like food is a part of that and it's going to move forward as well. It's kind of a reflection and that we, you know, in, in America as Arabs, we hold on to like the particular ways that our like grandmas made the food mm. or whatever. But actually, in fact, you go there and just there is just another world of food happening. Yeah, yeah I think the immigrant experience is really interesting here in that sometimes like it, for better or for worse, like we kind of freeze in time. And I remember my mom went back to Beirut uh, two years ago for the first time in 30 years. Wow. And she was like, it's completely changed. Like, I don't, now she sees herself, she couldn't live back there. But like, even the kind of, it's like a completely different country than the one she left. But probably the memories that she has is if it never changed. And yeah, food does evolve. And it makes me feel better about like what I'm doing here. You know, like, that's just part of the beauty of food, right? It evolves. And we have to, we have to stay on the cutting edge. We have to keep it exciting. We have to, you know, and I still maintain and preserve the stories. And I still look like the cookery, like the, the books that I have, like date all the way back to like, you know, I have like a cookery of like uh, a cookery book. It's called like Iraqi cookery from like the medieval times, you know, like, and I still get tricks of the trade from that cookbook. And there's, like, the kind of, like, Chef Murad, who's, like, doing the cutting edge, like, you know, high-end Moroccan food. And he has amazing culinary techniques, too, you know, like Bar Tartine. They're, like, doing amazing things with, like, science and chemistry and, like, creating new flavor profiles. I take from that, you know. I take from my days at Arizmendi Pizzeria. So you have to take from it all um, and be able to to recreate uh, in a way that 
feels both accessible and new and cutting edge for folks. So it's that kind of balance that I try to do. And it's really not just about the food. Like my, the three goals of my, um, my business is to really, um, create something that, that, that starts a conversation, uh, around Arab culture and educates people about, uh, Arab history and culture. Um, to have something that to, to provide good food and the experience of good food. So not just about the food itself. Right. But like the community that it creates, like doing something that's like a staple in the community, like that people can come to that employs people locally, that provides living wages, that like supports local farms, all of that. Right. Um, and then third, you know, and most importantly is to provide good food. Yeah. So, um, I think, you know, I'm on my way to doing all of that. And I couldn't have done it without the support of my community, right? Like, that's been part and parcel to the success of Reams. Right. I'm really glad yeah. you're doing it. And it, if you ever need taste testers, I'm willing <laughs> yeah. and ready. I'm willing and ready. And yeah. I have, you know, I'm from Lebanon, so I have experience that's awesome. <laughs> with the authentic taste. But yeah. I haven't tried your food yet, but yeah. I, I'm i so excited well, to try follow, it. you can follow me at Reams California. So those are my um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram handles. Um, I'm always kind of updating folks on where I'm at. Um, I do pop-ups frequently in Oakland. I'm at the Farmer's Market and the Mission Community Market on Thursdays from 4 to 8. Stay tuned, but also you know, looking to be in a kind of more permanent space. So, um, yeah. Great. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Um, so we've been speaking to Reem Asil, traditional Arab street food made with California love. That's Reem's slogan. And she is going to be around the Bay Area. You're going to see her popping up more and more. I can tell you that right now. We we wish you well in all of your endeavors. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today. Email her at reem at reemscalifornia.com. And if you just want to learn more about her business, go to www.reemscalifornia.com. This has been Arabiyat with Linda and Sreya. Theme song by Mukata'a track called Ahyat. You can follow him on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. And again, if you have any questions or concerns, you can email us at A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>